Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the woman, her neighbor, the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez beget Hezron, and Hezron beget Ram, and Ram beget Amenadab, and Amenadab beget Nashon, and Nashon beget Salmon, and Salmon beget Boaz, and Boaz beget Obed, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David. May God bless once again today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, help us as we come to the conclusion of this book of Ruth to better understand Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, the filling of Naomi. But most importantly, Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand how this book shapes and transforms our minds and it can be used to uh, make us more Christ-like as we live out what you've called us to. These things we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is, this is it. These are the last verses of the book of Ruth. And this is an interesting section of the book because there's very little uh, event narrative that happens. I mean, most of the book of Ruth is really just one big continuous story. You can see it played out as you read through it in your mind's eye. And then we come to these final verses and all of a sudden that stops. And so we're, we're faced with uh, something different. And so it's almost like as we come to this uh, last point uh, of the book of Ruth, we're challenged and we sit there and say, this is the moral of the story. So keep that in mind as we work through these these closing verses. Our passage this afternoon is separated into two parts. Historically, the first section is verses 13 through 17, known as the epilogue of Ruth. And so in this section, it ties up the final uh, events of the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But then we have what's called the coda, our second part in our passage today, uh, in verses 18 through 22, which gives us part of the royal genealogy from Perez unto David. And so now we will turn and look at these uh, two parts, first with the epilogue of Ruth. We can further break down this epilogue into three key themes. The first is the theme of redemption. Boaz takes Ruth and he, she becomes his wife and she bear a son. This should not be overlooked. We might just think that this is a transitional verse 
It's moving for us from the, the main climax of the story of Ruth to get us into the, the, uh, the extra information that's tacked on at the end of Ruth. But that's not it at all. This is the, the, the final uh, point of the theme of redemption. We saw in this morning's service that Ruth is now recognized by the people of Israel as an Israelite. She's the wife of Boaz and no longer the Moabite widow. And so here Boaz takes Ruth uh, as a wife and God gives them a child. And what a glorious thing to be able to have a child. But even more, God gives Ruth and Boaz a son. So we see here that a, a reversal of the situation. We, we pick up the story in chapter 1 with Ruth. Basically, almost as quickly as she's introduced, she becomes a childless widow. But here at the end of the book of Ruth, she is the happy wife and mother. This is a sign of, of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to Ruth. The Old Testament, you see these relationships, and so having children in a marriage is a sign of God's blessing on the marriage. It's been in, interpreted as a sign of God's blessing on the marriage. And likewise, the absence of children is also generally seen as a sign of, of God's dissatisfaction with that union. Now, that might not always be the case, uh, but here we can certainly say that this was a sign of God's blessing. We see that because there's a genealogy that's tied to this child that we'll get into in a little bit. But the key thing here is that it is a reversal of the situation. It is a reversal of the the state that Ruth found herself in. But this also signifies for us that God's plan doesn't just stay with Israel, with the ethnic Jews. Ruth is, after all, from the country of Moab. She is a Moabitess. She is not part of that ethnic people of God. And yet she's included. And in a big way. She will be the mother of one that is in the royal line of the kings of Israel. And the royal line of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we read this passage, this passage that we're so tempted to just glance over, we must think about that, that God's plan of salvation was not just for Israel. Many today would think that the church is just a parenthesis in God's plan of salvation. But as we come to this passage here, we're confronted with the exact opposite. It's not just a parenthesis, it's part of the plan. It's always been part of the plan. The fullness of Israel includes the faithful Gentiles, like Ruth and many others. Grafted in. Grafted into the people of God. Grafted into the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can think about that even for ourselves. I mean, our congregation here is uh, mostly, if not exclusively, of Gentile origins. I, I don't think that we have any ethnic Jews in our, our congregation. And, you know, that'd be fine if we did. And it's fine that we don't. The reality is, is that we share in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And that is what unites us. Not just as a congregation here. Not just as Reformed Baptists in Virginia. But Christians in all times, in all places. It is 
that were grafted in to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always a plan of God's salvation. Part of this plan of redemption. And we see redemption as a reversal. As we said, Ruth began the story as a childless widow, and now she is the happy wife and mother. We begin our stories with this state of original sin. We sin because we're sinners. And yet, purchased by the blood of Christ, we're no longer sinners, but we're saints. We're justified by him. And so it is a reversal of our initial state before God. That's redemption. And it's easy to overlook. It's easy just to move past. I mean, even as we go about our day to day, I mean, how often do you think, I have been purchased by Christ. And admittedly, I mean, even if you think about it all the time, that's probably not even enough. How could we do justice to the Lord Jesus Christ and and giving him thanks for that precious price of redemption that he paid? But this is something that we should think about. We should never just look over the fact of redemption, that God in his mercy saves sinners for his honor and glory. Short as it may be, that's the the theme of redemption that we find in the, the epilogue. But not only that, there's many reversals that occur here. The second is in the, in the theme of restoration. Just like that, Ruth and Boaz basically fade from the story. This is interesting for uh, a book to be titled Ruth, and she's not even the main character. Realistically, as we move through this, even though Ruth and, and Boaz, a lot of action centers around them, the, we have this theme of restoration, And that is solely focused on Naomi. We have to think about when Naomi comes back from the land of Moab, she says, don't call me Naomi, pleasantness anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. That is Naomi's lament. That's how the story opens up. But now as we come here and we read in in verse 14, the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman. They immediately turn and they praise God because of what God has done in the life of Naomi. Naomi used to think, God has dealt bitterly with me. God has stripped me of all the, the blessings that I ever had. And now I'm in this point of bitterness because of the Lord's dealings with me. But these women have it right. They recognize God's sovereignty, God's providence and care over Naomi. If we were to take a more wooden translation here from the Hebrew, it would say something to the effect of God did not stop providing a redeemer for you, Naomi. God has constantly been engaged in this act of preservation, of restoration. Even as you walked away to the land of Moab, God was working all that time to bring you back those 10 years in that faraway land. And God has continued to bring you back. There's probably some of us here that can empathize with that. Maybe we've backslidden. Maybe we've walked away for a time. And we might think, just like Naomi, I went out full, I had all of these blessings, and I went out into that far country, like that prodigal son. I come back empty, a beggar, 
with nothing. But that's God bringing you back. That's God not stopping to provide for you, to restore you. If that's you, praise God for his amazing providence, for his care in all that time. God did not stop providing a redeemer for Naomi, and God did not stop providing a redeemer for mankind. And through him will be restoration. And these women, they recognize that. They say, let his name be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. This is the, this woman's, these women's praise upon this child who, to this point, strategically by our author here of the book of Ruth, is left nameless. This child, this son that has been born unto you, Naomi, he's going to be a restorer of life. He is going to nourish you in your old age. And this again, this is another reversal of the book of Ruth. At the beginning of the book, there is a famine in the land. And so Naomi, along with Elimelech and her sons, they go to the land of Moab. They're pursuing food. They're pursuing physical nourishment. They're seeking that which they have lost in the land of Bethlehem because of the famine. And it's only later, once they come back, and once Naomi comes back with Ruth, and they start trying to figure out how Ruth is going to be provided for, that they then look for a kinsman redeemer. But here, it's reversed. These women in their praise and thanking God for this son say, this son that's born unto you, Naomi, he will be a restorer of life. He will be a redeemer for you. Quite literally, I mean, he's going to be the, the, the caregiver. He has revived this line of Elimelech. And so in that way, he really is the restorer of life. He has restored uh, the, the, this family line of Elimelech. And he's going to be a nourisher for, for Naomi. He is going to have the responsibility as the heir of Elimelech to provide for the family of Elimelech. As Naomi continues to age... This child is going to care for her. He's going to make sure that she's provided for. And realistically, this child is, is the actual kinsman redeemer. And while we often think, and rightfully, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer uh, in this story, the one who the responsibility really falls to is this son. He is the one that is actually reviving the line of Elimelech. And through him, that line will continue to propagate. And that he is the one that's actually going to care for the family of Elimelech. To care for Naomi in her old age. And so he is the one that is, is constantly acting to redeem. He's, he's effectively regained that inheritance and has restored it unto Naomi. They pray for his reputation among all of Israel. Before they prayed that Boaz would have a great reputation in Bethlehem among the Ephrathites. But here, this is, this is something different. This is expansive. We go from this little town of Bethlehem with this righteous man, Boaz, and it expands to cover the entire nation of Israel. That his name be great. But why? Why should this child's name be great? Well, because he's going to be a righteous son. 
As it says, he's going to be a restorer of thy life and a nurture of thy old age. But where does this concept come from? We have to look at his own parents. Boaz, a man of valor, a righteous man. Ruth, that faithful woman. That idealistic Proverbs 31 woman. And so this child is going to learn from his parents' faithfulness and righteousness. And it's going to be something to be emulated throughout not just Bethlehem, not just Judah, not just in that immediate, immediate area of where those tribes gather, but through all of the nation of Israel. All of Israel should seek to be righteous and godly and pious and faithful. But not only that, this child is, is a restorer of life to Naomi in the sense that he is a restorer, to the, uh, the, a restorer of the pleasantness of Naomi. Naomi's name, after all, means pleasantness. And so she, in her lament, said she's now bitter. She's bitter because of the Lord's dealing, because her family was cut off, because she had nowhere left to turn. But God, in his providence, provides a son, a, a, a redeemer of the line of Elimelech, a restorer of the blessings of the family, a restorer of the pleasantness to Naomi. She once again has a son. She once again can look and see the hope of the future as she takes that precious little baby and she holds him and looks at him and thinks, what will this young one become? What will this little baby boy be in the future? And it's bright and it's hopeful. And it will continue to be hopeful. And perhaps even Naomi lived to a ripe age to see some of it. Obed's sons, born and raised. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> it is a, a, a reversal of Naomi's state. The restoration of Naomi. No longer bitter, but once again pleasant because of this son born to her. But these women don't just leave off there. They're thankful for Ruth. Ruth. That once widowed Moabitess, now these Israelites are thankful for. It says here that, uh, that she uh, loves Naomi for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee. Keep in mind Ruth's profession. As they're uh, coming back uh, from the land of Moab... Naomi is trying to send her daughter-in-laws away so that they might find a better life in Moab. There was nothing for these two Moabite women in the land of Bethlehem by all accounts that Naomi could tell. But Ruth would not go. Instead, she said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from falling after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. That's Ruth's love. That's Ruth's covenant, faithfulness. And so these women are, are praising Ruth because she was willing to forsake everything out of love for Naomi sacrificing everything that she could have possibly had in Moab for the uncertain future in Bethlehem. 
because she cared so deeply for Naomi. And it's that faithfulness that this son is going to learn. And so these women praise Ruth for that. But then they also say, which is better to thee, Ruth is better to thee than seven sons who have borne this son, this child, to restore your family line. So in that there's this Hebraic idiom. It's an idealistic kind of way of speaking that, that to be better than seven sons would be the best thing possible. You know, if we were to, to put it in, in kind of one of our idioms, it's better than sliced bread, you know. But it's, Ruth is better than seven sons. She's better than what could be provided for through seven sons, through their sons, and continuing on through generations. And this is another clever technique of our, our author here of the book of Ruth. Because we're still, we don't have all the details. If we read this for the first time without any prior knowledge of anything else, we wouldn't know that this, this child would be in that royal line. But Naomi, who was previously cut off because of the death of her family, is now uh, brought back in and restored. And not just restored because her family is going to continue, but she is now connected to the royal line of kings and the messianic line. And so this is maybe a prophetic way that these women and their blessings say that because this child is a great blessing to Naomi. The depth not totally known at the time of their speech. But Ruth indeed is better to Naomi than seven sons. Her faithfulness, her care, God's providence over that relationship and his provision and and this son who would be in the line of kings. That is the restoration that we find. Total reversal for Naomi. Total reversal for Ruth. But then we also have uh, even more along that line. Naomi is now a foster mother to this child. Naomi took the child and laid it upon her bosom uh, and became a nurse unto it. She cared for the child. Legally, this child was hers. He is the inheritor of the estate of Elimelech. That doesn't mean that Ruth is is totally disregarded, that she has no interaction. We can imply from what's being said here that because of Ruth's love for Naomi in, uh, in her return from Moab, that Ruth continues to care for and look after Naomi. Obviously, she has a duty and responsibility to her husband, Boaz, and and that family, but there's still this element of care that is, is ongoing. Ruth is caring for Naomi as Naomi is caring for this son that Ruth bore for her. And so with this, Ruth is removed from the story. And the focus here shifts completely to the restoration of Naomi and now focuses and hones in on this child, this son that has been born to her. Friend, today I ask you, have you been restored by God? Have you been brought back from a place of bitterness? Have you enjoyed the blessing of hope that God has provided for you? But not only that, are you being restored? That until the day of our death or the Lord's return, we're constantly involved in this act of restoration through sanctification. Christian, how is that, how is that going for you? 
Are you being restored? Are you being renewed day by day through the word of God? Through communion with him in prayer? Through the fellowship of the saints? Are you taking part in these, these blessings that God has given you? Take every opportunity that you can. Be in the word. Be with God's people. Go to God in prayer. Be restored by the work of God in your life. Well, we come now to this third part of the epilogue, this third theme, which is the theme of hope. So Naomi now has this son, this son that is her son, the heir to her family's estate. And her, the women neighbors again chime in. It's like the chorus in a, in a play. And they come in at the opportune moments to, to highlight a great fact that's uh, going on in the story. And here they come in again. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. They recognized the hope that this son meant to Naomi. Redeemed, restored, with a hope of the future. And moreover, they called his name Obed. There's some debate as to what exactly this means. Some think that perhaps it is a shortening of the name Obadiah, which means a servant of God, a servant of Yahweh. But perhaps it just means servant. But realistically, it's highlighting the nature, the nature of this child, the nature of the shift in reversal that occurs throughout the book of Ruth. We begin in the book of Ruth with a man named Elimelech. A proclamation, my God is king. And what does he do? Does he stay where God has told him? No, he goes off into a far land. But we come now to this end of the book. And we have this child named Servant or Servant of God. It is a reversal because it's not a proclamation. It's a relationship. This child is highlighting what is going to be true for the line of kings. That they would be servants of God. We also see in this that in the beginning there's no king. It's the time of the judges in Israel. There's no king. And even in Elimelech's name, the proclamation, my God is king, there's no respect for the kingly authority of God. But this one, Obed, he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. As we've stated throughout the study that this book was likely written at the earliest during the reign of David. They recognize David as king. We go from having no king in Israel, no king for the people of God at the beginning of the story, and that's reversed. We have this child, this hope, this servant of God who will bring about the kingly line, the, the royal line to lead the people. But this points, this hope of this child points us ahead. It points us to the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. So if you would like to flip over to 2 Samuel in chapter 7, beginning reading here in verse 8. Now therefore show, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou went... Oh, I'm... I am in the wrong chapter, y'all. <laughs> oh, 
Or maybe I'm in the right chapter. I'm all mixed up now. Nope, that's right. Therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are here in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's God's promise to David. He is going to establish a house through David. He is going to set up a king forever through David. This is the promise, the Davidic covenant that God makes. And so all of this that David is king there, taking this promise of God, applying it with the book of Ruth, we look to this hope of the Messiah, this king to come. This line of Obed through Jesse, through David, would bring about the Messiah. This is the hope not just for, for Naomi and the establishment of an heir for her inheritance, for her family's inheritance, but the hope of Israel. And so these women are right when they say, may his name be great in all of Israel, because it will be. It will be because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the true king, the servant king of God's people. And so that is the epilogue in Ruth. But we're not done yet. We still have one more section to go. And this is the genealogy, the royal line, the coda of Ruth. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez beget Hezron, and Hezron beget Ram, and Ram beget Aminadab, and Aminadab beget Nashon. And Nashon beget Salmon, and Salmon beget Boaz, and Boaz beget Obed, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David. Ten names. This is not an accident, and it's also probably not entirely chronologically accurate. But that is not the purpose in the author's writing. He's writing for a theological purpose. And so this is a, another one of these Hebraic ways of communicating something. There's a signal of importance. Some commentators think that this was added on. They're probably not the most conservative uh, uh, scholars, but they, um, they, they think that this was an addition later on after the book was written to highlight or to, to help focus people's attention on, on David as the king. But realistically, there's no good reason to think that outside of some kind of preconceived notion. Realistically, by all accounts, this was part of the original authorship of the book of Ruth. It is the moral of the story. It's added on at the end, not as an afterthought, but as the main point. This is the moral of the story. There is a king that will come. 
there's three key positions in this list of names. First is the, the first position, beginning with Perez. And so we see in this, in the life of Perez, we uh, spoke about it earlier, and we looked to Genesis 38, that from wickedness, God can bring righteousness. Perez is known not so much for being famous in himself, but because he is infamous. His birth comes from an infamous story. He's not even really a, a, a great man. I mean, he doesn't stand out really too much in Scripture. But this is a, a reminder that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That even in that terrible situation of Judah and Tamar through this birth of Perez, God can take those terrible situations and turn them into something great. This isn't specifically about uh, abortion and uh, right to life and things like that, but realistically, there's an application there. No matter the, the wicked circumstances of a child be, being conceived, that doesn't restrict them to wickedness, that doesn't restrict them to a lesser life. God is sovereign over every single event that ever takes place, and He works everything according to His will. And this is something that we, we may grasp at, but we'll never be able to fully understand. That how God can use our own desires, no matter how sinful they may be, no matter how righteous they may be, and he can take them and use them to, to bring about his will and purpose and his good pleasure. God is sovereign over secondary causes. God uses all things for his honor and glory. I freely admit that doesn't make sense to me. And sometimes it's an unsatisfactory answer. But even as we read through this royal genealogy, we have to come to the realization that God used sinful men to bring about the righteous Redeemer. But the second place of importance in this list of ten names is the seventh place. Seven being a number of, of completion uh, and, and specifically in the case of genealogies, uh, a place of honor. And so here in this seventh position, the seventh name in this list belongs to Boaz. Boaz, the son of strength. But Boaz is a unique figure. If we go to the book of Matthew and re read the genealogy that is presented there in the opening chapter that is proclaiming the line of Christ from Adam we see that this man, Boaz, was the son of an unlikely character. Boaz is the son of Rahab, the woman from Jericho, who hid the Israelite spies as they were going into land to conquer it and took care of them and allowed for their safe escape. She had faith in the one true God. And so here's this righteous man, Boaz, a man of valor, a man to be emulated, a man whose name becomes great in Bethlehem because of his righteousness, not because of his own uh, uh, personal desires to become great. A half Gentile in this royal line. But as we have just worked through this story of Ruth, it's not just that Boaz is a half-Gentile 
and he's a righteous man, but he marries a righteous Gentile, a Moabite. And so you've got two Gentiles there back to back. Once again, God's plan of redemption includes the Gentiles. The fullness of Israel includes those people that were originally cut off. Our third place in this list is the final place, the tenth place, which belongs to David. David, that shepherd king, the man after God's own heart, who God called not because of his outward looks and abilities, but because of the pureness of his heart. It's probably well known that this, at the time of this writing, that David is the king of Israel. Perhaps this could have been propaganda to help bring together the nation of Israel in those early days where there was still division after the death of King Saul. Perhaps this was later just to help solidify the place of the kings in Israel, the importance of David as an ideal king. But again, this points us to that Davidic covenant that God will build a house for David that he will establish a throne forever for David's special son. This is the Messiah. This points us ahead. This whole book of Ruth, there are many things, there are many purposes in the book of Ruth, but they all kind of surround the same things. Redemption, the Redeemer, restoration, covenant faithfulness. That covenant faithfulness doesn't begin here in the book of Ruth. It doesn't start in the New Testament. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It goes back to that first action of sin. Where instead of cutting off Adam and his wife in the garden, he provides a way of mercy. He provides a way of justification. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And God clothes them with skins of another And so even in that, in all of this, it's pointing us to this coming Messiah, the moral of the story of Ruth. There is a Messiah, there is a Redeemer that is to come, the rightful King of Israel, not just the ethnic Israel, but the true Israel, the chosen people of God, elected before the foundation of the earth, according to God's own good pleasure. That is the moral of the story. Well, we come now to think about the book of Ruth as a whole. How does this fit, not just within the pages of Scripture, but even within our own lives? Well, first, it informs our understanding of God. The book of Ruth informs our understanding of God. That might seem like an odd thing to say because God doesn't really seem to have a very active part throughout the book of Ruth. He's mentioned at times, but uh, it's not like he's coming in and interacting with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi like, he, like God does in Genesis or, or in other places throughout Scripture. But the reality of it is, is that even as the book progresses, you're forced to deal with the fact that God is sovereign over every single event. This is highlighted in the closing verses when the women pray and they bless God for his providence. God is the sovereign provider for his people. Nothing is outside of God's control. Second, 
The book of Ruth informs our understanding of Hesed, of covenant faithfulness. We see this on two planes in the book. There's the horizontal plane and the vertical plane. We see that in the the horizontal plane in the lives of uh, Ruth and Boaz and their faithfulness to do what God has called them to do and to care for family and to be self-sacrificing and to put others ahead of themselves. But we see this in the vertical has said, this God's covenant faithfulness, that he continues to provide and care for this family of Elimelech, that he continues to provide for Naomi, that he provides a place of rest for Ruth, that he provides hope in this child Obed, that points to David, that points to Christ, that his, is his covenant faithfulness, that he will bring a seed to the woman to crush the serpent's head, that he will establish a righteous king to reign forever. God's covenant faithfulness. And that makes us think about how we're to live, how we're to live in light of that. We're to be, as people of God, as Christians, we're to be faithful to what God has called us to. And we can certainly look to Ruth and Boaz as moralistic examples, but let us not overlook the fact that we're supposed to think of God's covenant faithfulness and that he will provide for us and that he will bless us and enable us to do the work he has called us to. God's covenant faithfulness. God's has said. Thirdly, the book of Ruth informs our interpretation of Scripture, our hermeneutic. The Old Testament could said to be Christological, Christotelic, that it's, it's surrounding Christ, it's looking for its end in the Messiah, it's looking for its end in Christ. And that's, that's key here in the book of Ruth. They're looking for that Redeemer. They're looking for that hope. They're looking for that restoration. When we come and we read Scripture, when we take up the Word of God, are we looking for Christ? Are we seeking to find Him? It may not be in every passage of Scripture, but He is in all of Scripture. Think about that when after the resurrection, He appears to those disciples on the road to Emmaus and Beginning in Moses, he expounds to them how the scriptures point to himself. Let's do the same thing, beloved. Let's take the Bible and look for Christ and find Christ and treasure Christ in all of scripture. Ruth informs our hermeneutic, showing us Christ, even in the Old Testament. Fourthly, Ruth informs our understanding of redemption. We see this in the type of Boaz. We see this in the anti-type of Christ, that there must be a blood relative, that he must have the means to redeem, that he must be willing to act as the redeemer. And this points us to Christ who, who is our relative, God in the flesh, who has the means of redemption in his perfect life, who's willing, faithfully went to the cross to redeem sinners raised, and sits now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Christ, our Redeemer King. Lastly, and we've already alluded to this, it informs our lives as Christians. Yes, Ruth is about the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, the act of redemption, 
the act of restoration. But all of that is surrounded, is upheld by this concept of said, this concept of covenant faithfulness, of steadfast love. And this is a driving force for the Christian life. Do you desire to be faithful to what God has called you to? When you're faced with those challenges of decisions in life, what are you looking to to inform you, to shape that decision? Are you facing it in your own strength? Or are you looking to Christ? Are you thinking of God's covenant faithfulness and then reacting in thankfulness to God in those decisions? The book of Ruth is a key book in the Bible. Obviously, it's part of the completed text of Scripture. And it is so informative for us. As we read through it, as we read through the Old Testament, may God continue to help us to see Christ, to rest in Him, and to enable us to live faithfully that He's called us to it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this precious book. Thank you for this story of redemption, the story of your covenant faithfulness, the pointing that we have to David, the pointing that we have to the greater David, the shepherd king, our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we read through scriptures uh, to take hold of Christ in every opportunity, to see him rightly where he is in scripture, to Hold fast to that hope to see how you redeem and restore and continue to provide for us in all things, how you're over every single action and reaction in life. Lord, help us rest in you. These things we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.